Well, hello, and thanks for listening in to our weekly teaching podcast here at City Church. We are a church in the Knoxville area that seeks to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you're in Knoxville or ever visiting Knoxville, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people here in the city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can drop us a line at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, again, good to see you guys this morning. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Mark chapter 3, to that passage we just read. Mark chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to use one of ours. There should be some under the seats on the end of each row. If you are using one of our Bibles, the page number will be up on the screen behind me. If you're not using one of those Bibles, the page numbers will not help you very much. But you're welcome to give it a shot. Maybe you get lucky. Maybe you get close. Who knows? But we'll be in Mark chapter 3. This morning, we are kicking off a brand new teaching series called Church is a Family. And I selfishly have been looking forward to this for quite some time. Uh, Basically, what we have realized uh, over the past few years as we've been a church is that uh, when people come around our church, or at least people that stick around our church for very long, They tend to notice something a little bit different in regards to how we go about our relationships with one another. And I think to some people, it's a good different. And to other people, it's a bad or at least a weird different. But almost to everybody, they start to pick up on there's something different about how we approach our relationships with one another. And so if you're here, if you've just been coming around for maybe a few weeks or a month or two, and you've noticed that, you've thought, man, there's something different about how they do that around here, but I can't quite put my finger on what it is. Chances are this series is going to be very helpful for you in that regard. We're going to kind of shed some light on the why behind the what in regards to how we go about life as a church together. And if you've been coming around for quite some time, say that you're already a part of our life group system and you're a member of our church, you've been a part of City Church for a while, uh, there's a decent chance that some of what we talk about this morning is going to be review to you. It's going to sound pretty familiar. But at the same time, we are going to get to dive more in depth into some concepts here in this series than I think we've ever been able to do in a Sunday setting before. So my hope is that it'll be helpful, it'll be informative, it'll be fresh for all of us in the room in some way. But the big idea behind this series is that church at its core, according to the scriptures, was designed to function like a family. That's the big idea. Now, that sounds simple enough, but what we're going to discover, especially today, is that that might not mean exactly what most of us assume that it means at the beginning. So that's where we're headed for today. For starters, let's just take a look at the passage, one of the primary passages in the Bible that we get this idea from, where Jesus talks about the church being a family. So look with me in Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 31. It says, And his mother and his brothers came, that's Jesus' mother and brothers, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around Jesus, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. They want to talk to you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Uh, That had to be a weird question for the disciples, right? 
Like, are they going, does Jesus want us to explain the concept of a biological family to him? Like, I don't understand what he's asking. Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? It is, of course, a rhetorical question. Verse 34. And looking about at those who sat around Jesus, here, referring to the other followers of Jesus, the other disciples sitting around Jesus, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God... He is my brother and sister and mother. So obviously what Jesus is pushing for in this passage is for followers of Jesus to relate to one another like a biological family would. That's the metaphor that Jesus uses. That his followers or in his language, those who do the will of God are like his family members. And this idea doesn't stop with Jesus, not by a long shot. In fact, the other New Testament authors pick up this metaphor and they just run with it such that the most popular term to refer to followers of Jesus in the Bible is the Greek term adelphoi, which translated into English as brothers and sisters. That word is used over 342 times in the New Testament alone. It beats out any other terminology for followers of Jesus by a long shot. So evidently, when we talk about what it means to be a Christian, when we talk about what it means to follow Jesus, to belong to Jesus, one of the primary things that we are talking about is belonging to God's family. The family idea is also built into one of the other primary metaphors in the Bible to refer to what it means to become a follower of Jesus in the first place, the metaphor of Adoption. This metaphor is all over the New Testament as well. Take a look with me at just a few samples of the metaphor of adoption in the Bible. Ephesians 1 says this, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Galatians 4 says this, but when the set time had fully come, God, his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. One more in Romans chapter eight, for those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. So when the New Testament authors want to help us understand what it means to become a Christian in the first place, they employ this word picture, this metaphor of adoption. Now, think about adoption with me for just a second. Adoption by its very nature is relational, is it not? And I don't just mean from parent to child. It's also relational in terms of the adopted child to the other siblings in the family, if there are any, right? I can think of no examples of a person who enters into a family and doesn't also become siblings with the other brothers and sisters in the family. For instance, my son, Witt, he's not adopted, but he's a part of our family. If Witt came up to me at one point and said, you know what, Dad, I've been thinking about it. And the the more that my baby sister, Nora, grows up, I got to be honest with you, I'm not a fan of her. And so what I would like to do is I would like to remain your son, but I would like to no longer be Nora's brother. That would not work, right? It's not how a family operates. It's a package deal. When you get a new father, you also get new brothers 
and sisters. It's the exact same way with our relationship with God. When Jesus went to the cross and died for us and then came back from the dead for us, what happened is that you and I became God the Father's kids. When we trust in Jesus, when we trust in what he did for us through his death and resurrection, we become sons and daughters of God. Meaning he purchases us out of our sin. He pays for our sin on our behalf and we become his son or his daughter. That is final for good. No take backs. That's done, right? That is what it was accomplished by Jesus. But with that, what also happens is that we become siblings with the other people that God has rescued out of their sin into his family. That also is final for good and no take backs. When God becomes our father, we also gain a whole bunch of new brothers and sisters as a result. There is no way around it. The church becomes our family. That's what the New Testament authors mean, and that's what Jesus means in Mark chapter three. But here's the important part to realize. And and unfortunately, this is also the most, the easiest part for us to miss in our society today. The important thing for you to realize is that when Jesus says that the church should function like a family, he does not mean that they should function like a modern American family. I know that because modern American families didn't exist when Jesus said this, and I'm that good at context clues, right? He doesn't mean that we should function like a modern American family. What he means is that we should function like an ancient Mediterranean family would have. Because that's the audience that he's speaking to. And that's the culture that Jesus was a part of. So anytime we read the Bible, we want to do our best not to just assume that what it seems like it means to us on the surface is actually what it means. We want to do our best to understand what it would have meant to the original audience. And then we discover what it means for us. Does that make sense? So when Jesus says that we should function like a family, he doesn't mean a modern American family. He means an ancient Mediterranean family. And if you've studied any anthropology at all, you will know those are actually two very different ideas. Those are two radically different understandings of what family is. Perhaps the most significant difference between the two is that ancient Mediterranean culture was what was called a strong group society. A strong group society. You don't have to write that down. There's not going to be a quiz later, but just for you to know, it's called a strong group society. Sometimes these are also called collectivist societies or communal societies. The gist of it is when an ancient Mediterranean person thought about themselves, when they thought about who they were at their core, they thought of themselves primarily as a part of a larger group and only secondarily as an individual. That's so hard for us to get, but that's how an ancient Mediterranean person would have thought about themselves, would have thought about the society that they were a part of. Here's how biblical scholar and anthropologist Bruce Molina describes a strong group society, just to help you further grasp what this would have meant exactly. Bruce Molina says this, in a strong group society, the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a group and responsible to the group for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. 
The individual person is embedded in the group and is free to do what he or she feels is right and necessary only if in accord with group norms and only if the action is in the group's best interest. The group has priority over the individual member. Now, like I already mentioned, you'll notice this is very different from how you and I think about ourselves, right? It's a very different understanding of society and of our individual identity. Chances are reading that quote might even feel a little bit wrong to us in our society today. We might have some pushbacks to it. And that's because we are not a strong group society. Modern America is what we would call an individualist society or a weak group society. We see ourselves primarily as individuals and only secondarily or occasionally as a member of a group. In our culture today, even the healthiest of American families probably wouldn't function like that quote that we just read. That's just not how we think about our culture. So you might wonder what societies would be examples of strong group societies? Well, almost every single society down throughout history with the exception of late modern Western society. Almost every culture has thought about themselves with a strong group mentality. And a lot of cultures today still very much operate this way. For example, Japanese culture. The Japanese word for person translates roughly to in between others. So even down to how they use language, they perceive of themselves as belonging to a culture. They, to be a human in their mind is to exist among other humans, in between other humans. In Spanish, there is a saying, mi casa es su casa. My home is your home. In America, we have our own saying, which is a man's home is his castle. So in our language, not only is my home very much not your home, my home is where I go to get away from you, right? That's how we perceive of ourselves and the groups that we're a part of. So it's just a very different mindset when it comes to how people thought about themselves and the others around them. And chances are, because we don't think like a strong group society today, to a lot of us, this strong group mentality not only sounds undesirable, it, it probably even sounds a little bit oppressive to us, right? It feels like it kind of squashes individual freedom and autonomy. It feels like something we very much wouldn't want at all. It's not desirable for us at all. And to be sure, the limitation of individual freedoms is a downside, at least from our perspective, of a strong group society. That's a disadvantage in our eyes. But it's probably worth noting while we're on the subject that individualist thinking also has its downsides that sometimes we are quite blind to because we just assume that it's right. For instance, do you think our issues with loneliness in our society might have something to do with how individualist we are? I'd be willing to bet it has something to do with it. Modern Western society seems to struggle more with loneliness than most any other culture that we are aware of in history. British Prime Minister Theresa May made headlines in January of last year for appointing a loneliness minister to her cabinet. That's a real thing. You can Google it. Like Brits were struggling so much with loneliness that they created a position in their government to help try to alleviate the problem. 
It's a problem here in the States, too. So if you were around for our series through the Psalms this past February, you remember that a former Surgeon General here in the U.S. was quoted as saying that the most widespread pathology he saw was not heart disease or diabetes, but rather loneliness. That loneliness was behind much of the issues that he saw people come in with. Now, I get that loneliness is a complex issue. There's all sorts of things that contribute to loneliness in our society. But I think it's worth noting that some of the most individualist societies also tend to struggle the most with loneliness. I'd be willing to bet there's at least a connection there. That's one drawback of seeing ourselves primarily as individuals. I think another effect of our individualist take on life can be anxiety. Some of the biggest decisions that we make as human beings, like what we're gonna do for a living, for our career, who we're gonna spend the rest of our lives with, where we're going to live for the rest of our lives. In other cultures, those have historically been decisions that you make together with other people, with your family. In a lot of cases, your family would help you decide those things, if not outright decide some of them for you. In modern American culture, what happens is that Those decisions are solely on our individual shoulders. We might seek out wisdom from a parent or a trusted confidant or something like that. But at the end of the day, the weight of those decisions is still entirely on our shoulders. For some people, that tends to generate some anxiety. Now, again, with anxiety, there are a lot of contributing factors. I do not think this is the only reason we are anxious in our culture, not by a long shot. But when some of the most individualist societies are also some of the most anxious, you got to wonder if maybe there's a connection there too. So while we may prefer individualist thinking, that doesn't mean there aren't disadvantages to it. It's far from a flawless system, but it is how we think about reality. It's how we think about ourselves. But here's my point. Whatever you think about any of that, That's kind of beside the point for our purposes today, because I'm not trying to argue that America should try to become a strong group society. That's not my point. I'm not trying to make the point that strong group thinking is any better than weak group thinking necessarily. I'm simply showing you that when Jesus and the New Testament authors talk about the church being a family, what they meant was a strong group family, not an individualist. And we have to understand that if we're going to understand Jesus's words in their historical setting. What Jesus is saying is that we should have the level of commitment and care and priority towards our church family that an ancient Mediterranean person would have towards their biological family. And that's a big statement. And that's also where it starts to get a little bit uncomfortable for us. To demonstrate just how uncomfortable it makes us, I'm going to read that Bruce Molina quote again, but this time I'm just going to sub out the word group for church, and I want you to pay attention to how terribly uncomfortable all of us get. Are you ready for this? You guys don't look ready. This is going to be fun. All right, let's read this quote again. In a strong church, the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a church And responsible to the church for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. The individual person is embedded in the church and is free to do what he or she feels is right and necessary 
only if in accord with church norms and only if the action is in the church's best interest. The church has priority over the individual member. Some of you at this point are like, wait, is this a cult? Did I show up to a cult? My mom told me not to go to churches because I might accidentally be in a cult. And that is what has happened. I should have listened to my mom, right? Uh, First, this is not a cult. You'll be happy to know that. We do not consider ourselves to be a cult here. We're not a cult in any way. Second off, uh, if you are made uncomfortable by that, know that you are not the only one that is made uncomfortable by that. It makes me uncomfortable. Right? There are days where I really wish the Bible said, uh, hey, you know what? To be a Christian is really just to make an individual private decision between you and God. And, you know, in terms of your relationships with other people, just try to be nice to them sometimes. I really wish the Bible said that some days because that would be way easier than what the scriptures call us to. But that is not what the scriptures call us to. The Bible says that we are to interact with one another like an ancient Mediterranean strong group family. To follow Jesus, we have to wrestle with what the scriptures actually say, not just what we wish they said, right? And here's the important difference, I think, between the family language of Jesus and a cult. In the language of Jesus, it's about him. It's not about any of us. Okay, so in other words, this is not a way of orienting anybody around me or Jeff or Marcus or any of the leadership at City Church. It's not a way of people orienting themselves around City Church, the organization. None of that. A cult would mean that this is all my idea, right? That I'm orienting you guys around me. But it's not my idea. It's Jesus's idea. All I've done so far is tried to set Jesus's words in their historical context so you can see what he intended to communicate exactly. So there's no Kool-Aid for you to drink. There's no blood covenant for you to participate in. We're just trying to understand what the scriptures teach us about our relationships with one another. Specifically, that followers of Jesus are called to treat one another like a strong group ancient Mediterranean family would. That when Jesus calls the church to function like a family, when he calls you and me to function like a family with other followers of Jesus, he's not just saying that we should try to care about one another a little bit more than we currently do. What he's saying is that we should radically reorient our lives to be about the good of those around us in God's family. To Jesus, that is how we should relate to one another if we would call ourselves a follower of Jesus. Now, I realize that to some of you, that might be a deal breaker. Mm. To you, that seems weird and uncomfortable and invasive, and you'd just rather not, if you were honest. And that's fine. But I just want you to see that your issues, if that's your perspective, your issues are with the scriptures, not with me. Okay? I'm just trying to show you what Jesus teaches in this passage. But for those of you that are ready for the fullness of life that Jesus offers us as a part of his family, for those of you that want to live into the reality of these transforming, life-giving relationships with other people, if you're there, if you want that, whatever it takes, 
then I think we're going to talk about a lot of things that are going to be helpful throughout this series. And we're going to get into so much of what the daily ins and outs of these types of relationships look like as we go through the next seven weeks together. But for today, all I want to do is just give you three basic foundational building blocks for what this might mean. There are a few things that I think have to be in place if we're going to even start to live into this reality of being a part of God's family. There are a few things that have to be there if we're even going to have a shot at it, realistically speaking. And so I want to walk you through those before we're done today. First, if we are going to become the type of family that God calls us to be, we are going to need a commitment to being together. A commitment to being together. If any of the rest of the stuff in this series is even going to have space to actually occur, we're going to need a commitment to being around one another as followers of Jesus on a regular basis. Scripturally, one of the places I get this from is Hebrews chapter 10, where it says this. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. There is simply no way around it. We have to put a priority on being together as a group of people if we are going to foster the type of relationship that Jesus has for us. If we're going to become this type of church family, we have to have a commitment to being around one another on a semi-regular basis. Now, Just in case you read that passage in Hebrews 10 and you think it's mainly just talking about this, the Sunday gathering. Really, all it's saying is that we should try to be here on Sundays. You also want to consider passages like the one found in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 44. It says this. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Do you see how much togetherness is in that passage? It uses that word a few different times. It says they ate together in their homes. They were together and had everything in common. It even says that every day they met together in the temple courts. Every day, the church was together with one another on some level every single day. Now, I'm not going to sit here and require that all of us see everybody in this room every day. That would be pretty impossible. Uh, There's reasons that it was more possible back in this day than it is today. But here's what I will say. At a bare minimum... If we can't make it a priority of ours to be here on Sundays more often than not and to be at life group more often than not, it's going to be pretty impossible for us to become that type of family. Right? I mean, if our posture towards being around other followers of Jesus is, yeah, I mean, I'll be there unless something better comes up. That's not going to work. If our posture is, yeah, I mean, I'll be there as as long as the week hadn't been stressful so far. That's not going to work. Listen, I'm part of a family of four. We have two young kids. If I only showed up to life group on weeks that hadn't been stressful so far, I would be at life group like once a year. Like we'd show up on Christmas and we'd be like, hey, guys, 
Good to see y'all. If we're going to become the type of family that we see in the scriptures, we're going to have to possess a commitment to being around one another on a regular basis. But listen, here's the here's such the important part to realize. It's not just about checking off a box. It's not just about showing up and saying, "Okay, I did the community thing this week. That's not what we're after. The reason that it's important for us to be together is because of what being together leads to. It leads to meaningful relationships with other people. Think about it this way. The relational intimacy in a friendship that you have with someone is almost always proportional to the level of commitment in that relationship. Intimacy is directly proportional to commitment. So if you want intimacy, if you want meaningful friendship with another person, you're going to have to put commitment into that friendship to get it to that point. So it's really easy to see this within a marriage. So if you got married and upon getting married, you said to your spouse, hey, I really want to do this marriage thing with you, but also I'd love to keep my options open. So like, I want us to have like a for now kind of marriage. And if somebody else better comes along one day, then we'll just call it quits and we'll go our separate ways. What's going to happen to the level of intimacy in your marriage if you do that? Not great things, right? Because the reality is intimacy is proportional to commitment. If you want intimacy out of a relationship, you have to put commitment in. That's just how it works. So when it comes to community... If you want to maintain a very loose level of commitment to other followers of Jesus, you can totally do that. That's your prerogative, okay? But I want you to know that it will negatively affect the meaningfulness of that relationship if you do that. You cannot treat other people and relationships and friendships with other people like they're expendable and then expect those relationships to be meaningful. That's not the way it works. But if you put commitment into a relationship, what will begin to happen is that you will experience meaningful, transformative intimacy with that person as a result. That's how it works with any relationship, and it's certainly the way it works with the community of Jesus. You have to put in commitment. And the reality is commitment, more often than not, is measured in time. Commitment is often measured in time. You and I have probably heard people say that there is quality time and what? Quantity time, right? Quality time, quantity time. Here's the part that doesn't get said about that nearly enough. A lot of times, I would say even most of the time, quality time happens inside of quantity time. The more time you spend with somebody, the more meaningful the time you spend with them is going to happen. It's hard to have quality time without quantity time to prove it to you. If you just said to somebody, hey, you know what? I've got 15 minutes between this meeting and my next meeting. Let's get 15 minutes of quality eye contact and meaningful conversation in these 15 minutes. How's that going to go? No, because quantity time happens. I'm sorry. Quality time happens inside of quality time. I still said it backwards. You guys know what I mean at this point, right? So if you want meaningful friendship with another person, you've got to put in some time to get the relationship to that point. And then what begins to happen is as you spend more and more time with somebody, the more and more that that meaningful friendship is going to happen as a result. That's just the way relationships work. 
So if we're going to become this type of family that Jesus has for us in the scriptures, we're going to have to have a commitment to being with one another on a regular basis. Second thing that we're going to need to have if we're going to become this type of a family, second building block is healthy expectations. Healthy expectations. If we are going to become the type of community that God has designed us to be, we're going to need to have correct, appropriate expectations of the community around us. And that's tough for a lot of us. I don't know if you've noticed this, but we tend to idealize human relationships a lot. Again, it's easiest to see this in regards to a marriage or our romantic relationships. So a lot of us just inherently believe that one day we're going to find the perfect person who meets all of our romantic and relational needs and makes us permanently happy as a result. And that that's going to happen as a part of a marriage. We're going to find our other half and the rest of our life, starting at our wedding day from that point on, is just going to be eternal bliss because they're going to meet all of our needs. And then some of us get married and we go, oh, wait, that's not what this is. And I love marriage. I'm a big fan of marriage. That's not what marriage is, though. Marriage is not that type of relationship. And so what begins to happen for a lot of people is that we expect a romantic partner or spouse to meet every single relational need that we have. And then when they don't, because listen, no human being can do that. When they don't meet those needs, what begins to happen is that we grow bitter and resentful and frustrated and distant as a result because they didn't meet all the needs that we thought they would meet. Now, you may have never thought about it this way, but we often, I think, have a similar tendency when it comes to community. When it comes to our relationships with other followers of Jesus, we want to connect with them effortlessly. We want them to push us and challenge us, but not push us too hard or challenge us too much on the things we don't want to be challenged on. We want them to reach out to us at just the right times and in all the right ways. And we don't want them to put any expectations on us in return. And if we're honest, what we really want is for them to meet all of our spiritual and relational needs. And listen, nobody can do that. Nobody but Jesus. Nobody can meet every single one of your spiritual and relational needs. And if you expect them to, if you expect other followers of Jesus to be that for you, here's what's going to happen. You're going to crush your community with those expectations too. You're going to put so much weight on their shoulders. You're going to put so many needs that they are not able to meet on their shoulders that you're going to become bitter and frustrated and resentful towards them because they were not the perfect community you expected them to be. A guy you may have heard of named Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it this way in his excellent book, Life Together, one of the most helpful books in regards to this series that we're going to be walking through. He says this. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. Even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. That quote gets me every time. Because that's what I do. And I so instinctively just expect 
the other followers of Jesus that are a part of my community to, to do perfectly what no human being has ever been able to do perfectly. I expect them to meet all of my needs. I expect them to be this picturesque, perfect picture of what it means to be followers of Jesus, even though I've never been able to do that. So why would I expect them to? And what Bonhoeffer is saying is that if you want the community around you to thrive, you have to get just as good at loving the community itself as you are at loving the dream of community that's in your head. That's how you have to approach it if the community that we're a part of is going to thrive. We have to love the people themselves, not just the dream of what we want them to be for us. In other words, we need healthy expectations of our community. The people in your community are sinful and flawed, just like you, who are in desperate need of the grace and the mercy of Jesus, just like you, and are probably going to love you imperfectly, just like you do an imperfect job of loving them. That's the reality of the world that we live in. And so let's not put undue expectations on people that cannot live up to those expectations because it's going to crush it to them. It's going to be impossible for them to live up to that ideal in our head. If you go into a community expecting them to do perfectly what no human being ever has been able to do, that's not going to go much of anywhere. Instead, what we should do is we should go into a community expecting them to be imperfect people who are doing an imperfect job of following Jesus just like we are. And when we go in with those expectations, our community has a shot of becoming really something beautiful right before our eyes because we have healthy expectations of them. Finally, the last thing, and definitely the most important thing that we have to have if we're gonna become this type of a family is the posture of Jesus. Most importantly, if we are going to become the type of community that God intended us to be, we have to take the posture of Jesus. And this one right here is actually what's behind the other two, okay? If we get this, the other two start to work themselves out in response. In Philippians 2, let me just show you what I mean by this idea of the posture of Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is giving the church there in Philippi some practical instructions on how to live together as a church family. And as part of that, he says this, and this tends to be a favorite passage of ours around City Church. He says this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. If we are going to function like a family, this right here is where it has to start. It has to start with the posture, the mindset of Jesus. The posture of Christ himself, the posture that doesn't put our own needs and preferences and schedules and moods ahead of other people, but rather showing up and asking, how can I be helpful to the people in this room? How can I be helpful to the people that I'm called to belong to? Putting them ahead of ourselves. 
The type of posture that doesn't come into a community demanding and insisting that other people live up to our ideal of community. But rather the type of person that goes into a community and thinks, how can I serve? How can I help us become the type of community that I know the scriptures call us to be? What can I offer of myself to help us become that together? It involves walking into a community thinking, how do I serve the people here? Walking into life group each night asking, what can I offer the people in this room? That's the posture that will build up a community into what it's designed to be. Because that's the posture that Jesus himself took. What this passage says is that Jesus, who who was in his very nature God, he didn't use that posture, that position to his own advantage. He didn't show up on the scene and demand that everybody orient themselves around him. What he did is he showed up and he took the posture of a servant. He offered up himself. He offered up everything about him to help serve those around him. He took the posture of a servant himself and he used that to help transform the community into who who he knew they could be. And that's the posture that we are also called to take. Paul says we get that posture by looking to Jesus himself. He did not demand that other people live up to his ideals. He didn't demand that other people orient themselves around him. Instead, what he did was he took the posture of a servant and he took that posture all the way to the cross. Before he went to the cross, he washed the feet of his other disciples. He went to the cross and offered up his very life as a ransom for many to reconcile people to God the Father, to rescue people out of their sin and into his family where they can live in these types of life-giving relationships. That's the good news of Jesus. And Paul says that by looking to Jesus, by understanding that, by setting our minds on that reality, the posture of Jesus, we too, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can take that same posture. We too can become the type of people that take the posture of a servant and say, hey, how can I help? How can I serve? How can I contribute? Not what's in it for me, not how can these other people serve me, but rather how can I serve them? How can I help us become this type of people? And I can guarantee you that if we have a church full of people taking that posture towards those around them, we will become the type of community that all of us need, that the city of Knoxville needs, and that God designed us to be in the first place. That will happen, but it starts with each and every one of us taking the posture of Jesus, putting on the mindset of Jesus himself. So I'd love to just wrap things up by asking three very quick practical questions just to help us wrestle with everything we've talked about today. I know it's a lot. Three practical questions I would love for us to think through. So feel free to write these down as you process through them, or if you just want to sort of look at them on the screen and process through them in real time, you're welcome to do that. Three questions I would love for us to ask. First, do you have community? Do you have community? Is the default posture of your life, the default rhythm of your life, together with other followers of Jesus? Or is it isolation? Those are very different rhythms of life when you think about it. And just to be abundantly clear, when I say, do you have community? I don't just mean, do you know some other Christians? I I don't mean that. I mean, 
does your life have a pattern of overlapping with those other followers of Jesus? Do they know what you struggle with? Do they know aspects of your journey to follow Jesus? Do they know how to pray for you on a regular basis because they know what you're wrestling with? That's what I mean by do you have community? Think about it this way. If someone looked at your calendar on a typical week, would they conclude by your calendar that time with other followers of Jesus is a priority? Do you have community? That's the first question. Second, are you committed to your community? Are you committed to your community? So for those of you who do have community, who are in a life group or some sort of setting like that, are you actually committed to some of those people? Are there times where you love and serve them even when it'd be easier not to? Are there times where you show up for them even when you'd kind of rather not show up at all? If someone just casually looked at your life, would they assume, man, these relationships have a priority for this person? Are you committed to your community? And then lastly, third question I want us to consider, are you idealizing your community? Are you idealizing your community? Are there any ways that you have put undue pressure on your community to be something for you that they can never perfectly be? Are there there ways that you have put that weight on their shoulders when it doesn't belong there? Have you put any expectations on others that you haven't lived up to yourself in regards to your relationships? Are there any ways that you have grown bitter or resentful or frustrated because your community is not living up to your ideal picture of it? And if so, what needs to be done to acknowledge that, to repent of it, to own up to it, and to chart a better way forward in how you think about those relationships? Lastly, are you idealizing community? Those are three questions I would love for us to consider this week in our life groups. And more than anything, what I want in this series is I I want us to become the type of people, what Jesus called a city on a hill. I want us to become this group of people that puts on display what the kingdom of God is truly like. I want that when people look at how we interact with one another, how we sacrifice for one another, how we serve one another, I want people to look at that and go, wow, that must be what the kingdom of God is like. That must be what God intended for human beings. I want us to become that, but in order to get there, it's gonna take us looking at ourselves and considering where have I actually been a roadblock to this? And where can I actually change my mindset to be more like the mindset of Jesus by the power of the Spirit, ask Him to reorient how I think so that I might serve and take the posture of a servant towards those around me. I'd love to ask that the Lord would help us with that this week. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening. As many of you guys know, we are in the process of renovating and moving into a historic church building located on the Tennessee River right in the heart of Knoxville. If you regularly benefit from this podcast, we would love to extend the invite to you to consider giving to those renovations. If you're interested in finding out more, head to citychurchknox.com slash building.